You may be seated. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 17 as we continue on in 1 Kings. We were introduced recently to Elijah, this great prophet, the Elijah the Tishbite from the uh, city of Tishbe, uh, southeast of Galilee, a man who uh, was given a very, very difficult task. He had to go in the midst of a, an apostatizing nation and time and proclaim the Lord's word when it was not popular, when people were moving over to Baal worship in his nation. And yet he did not uh, fail to do that. He was willing to go and to speak and to be a man of integrity. Uh, and we'll see today two miracles that were done by him. But one of the things that we need to notice uh, is the purpose of miracles. The purpose of miracles is not simply to impress people. The purpose of miracles was rather to uh, attest to the veracity, the truth, that is, of the one who was doing them. Uh, he proclaimed the word of the Lord, and he showed that he indeed was speaking the truth by the miracles that he did. But now let's turn, before we go to the word of the Lord, to the Lord of the word, and let's ask for his help. Please join me. Great and gracious God, I can't open your word and exposit it without your help. I need, O oh Lord, your unction. I need your zeal. I need, O oh Lord, uh, your inner light to illuminate me. Lord, I pray that while I am an unworthy messenger, that the message would still shine forth. May I decrease, may Christ increase as his word is preached. And may we see, O oh Lord, how you have taken care of your people, provided for their needs, and kept your promises in every age and always will. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 First Kings chapter 17. I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 24. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up. Nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought, have, 
you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times, and he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Phoenicians were a mighty seafaring people. They were great traders. Tyre and Sidon were virtually synonymous with wealth and trade and so on. Uh, the heart of their land was actually in Lebanon, uh, modern-day Lebanon, uh, the place that was once known as the Levant. The great cities were Sidon and Tyre and Byblos, but we don't know much about their culture from digs in those cities. While we have many artifacts from the Phoenicians, they were all around the Mediterranean. For instance, the Phoenicians were the ones who founded that great rival to Rome, Carthage. They were in Sicily and in all the isles and so on. And they tried to form as many colonies as they, want, as they could. We have lots of artifacts from those colonies. Not too many, though, from places like Sidon and Tyre and Byblos, the great cities. And this is largely because there is still an active urban population sitting on those cities. Uh, in Lebanon, uh, it is a very dangerous place to live uh, and a very dangerous place to dig and sometimes impossible. So as a general rule, uh, the artifacts that are taken from uh, places like Sidon are artifacts that were discovered almost by mistake when excavations take place and things like that. There is an exception, though, to that rule of archaeology being difficult in that particular area. There is a, a city called Sarepta near modern Sarafand, which was a major Phoenician city as well on the Mediterranean coast, not as big as, uh, uh, as Tyre and Sidon, but nonetheless large. And um, it, like ancient Ephesus, has been extensively excavated. They've dug up many, many of, the, uh, of uh, the works, the architecture, and so on, and it has been thoroughly studied. The city that the Sidonians called Sarepta was known by the Hebrews as Zarephath. And excavations have ruled, uh, have rather, have found many of the things of daily life in ancient uh, Zarephath. Pottery workshops, kilns, artifacts that were used on a daily basis, jewelry. But one of the things that stands out about the city and all the things that are brought up is how religious, in one sense, this city was. Religious figurines are found everywhere in almost all of the ancient houses that they dig up. They find their household gods and personal figurines that people would carry around with them. Images of Asherah and Baal. Asherah poles, uh, along with the mentions of the name of the city, were all over it. And in particular, there's a massive cult shrine that was excavated uh, uh, for, to what the Sidonians would have called Astart, but the Jews knew as Asherah, the consort and the supposed rescuer of Baal. And it was found inscribed with an ivory plaque indicating that it had been dedicated to the goddess. More figurines, amulets, and even cultic masks used in worship 
uh, were found in that particular area. Zarephath, therefore, was probably something of a Mecca for Asherah, if I can put it that way, a place where pilgrims would come from uh, throughout the Phoenician uh, area, and unfortunately, from the northern kingdom probably as well, now that Baal worship had been instituted by wicked King Ahab's even more wicked wife, Jezebel. Uh, Baal worship was something that was abominable, not only because you were worshiping a false god, not a god really, but a demon, but it was also abominable because it involved sexual perversion in the worship itself, particularly in the worship of Asherah, and also uh, the Phoenicians practiced in their Baal worship and their Asherah worship child sacrifice. One of the saddest things that archaeologists archaeologists have discovered in uh, Carthage were not uh, the destruction, or was not the destruction, wreaked by the Romans, but rather they found tons of tombs of infants who were clearly sacrificed to their demon gods. But this was a religious place. Now, when the passage opens up, we'll get back to Zarephath in a little while. When the passage opens up, we learn that the brook Cherith has run dry. The prophet probably, that is Elijah, had probably been watching it for quite some time as the water changed from, from a regular stream eventually coming down to a trickle and then stopping entirely. The drought has choked the stream. And he can't stay there any longer. There's no more water. Even if the ravens bring him food, who will bring him water? And so he needs to go someplace else. Where is he ordered to go by the Lord? Well, hopefully someplace safe, right? Someplace far away from his enemies. He knew that Ahab was seeking him, that Jezebel wanted him dead and so on. He had declared that it would not rain until he said so. He had spoken in the name of the Lord, and so they hated him. Where then will the Lord send him? And I'm sure he was maybe a little trepidatious, just a little bit, when the Lord said that he was sending him to the land of the Sidonians. He was sending him to the place that Jezebel had come from, the heart of Baal worship. He was going to be sent there, specifically to this village that the Jews called Zarephath, or city, which was only 13 kilometers south of Sidon itself. Now, on the surface... As we look at it, that doesn't seem to make sense. Zarephath was also afflicted by drought, so he's not going to find a a, a surfeit of water there. And it was the heartland, as we've seen, of his enemies and all of these false gods. The question, therefore, is will he do it? The prophet has been told to go to the very place that a man of God would not be welcome, supposedly. Will he actually go? And the answer is yes. Once again, he simply gets up and he follows the leading of the Lord, regardless of the worldly danger that he seems to be in. Elijah is visiting enemy territory, but he is showing, note as he does this, the power of God in an area where Baal was worshipped. Earlier, you remember I had mentioned that um, we met uh, for Christian fellowship in a company that was, uh, this was in the 1990s in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, it was filled with paganism. One of the things that they, uh, that they held, uh, they, they would never have held a, you know, any sort of Christian celebration within the company, but they did hold a, uh, a, a paranormal ESP uh, cultic uh, celebration or festival, tarot card readers and so on. 
Um, and uh, they, the, the place was filled with uh, homosexuality. The vice president for human resources was a homosexual, and he was trying to build essentially a homosexual fiefdom within the company. Evangelical Christians were not popular, were not welcomed. I was almost fired for my faith. Uh, on at least two occasions, one where I came this close, but a, a Christian boss uh, above my boss saved my job. Um, what happened, though, was as we were being edified, meeting together on Wednesdays at lunch, also the word of God was or at least God's name, was being glorified. It was still there. People came, you know, people who were very, very, uh, shall we say, nervous, uh, came out of the woodwork and would kind of pop their heads in as we're sitting around the table in the conference room and we're reading and talking about the Bible and be like, uh, is this where the Christians are meeting? And like, yes, They'd kind of come on in and sit down and so on and learn that, you know, lightning bolts didn't immediately uh, descend from the heavens. Their boss didn't charge in with a pink slip and things like that. We were able to show the power of God and it definitely was spiritual warfare on the physical plane. I saw it being uh, played out. And as a young Christian, it was tremendously, believe it or not, even though I almost lost my job twice, it was tremendously encouraging for me. Now we see in these scriptures that Elijah is being sent into enemy territory to show the sovereign power of God, that he is in control even in this dark place where Baal was worshipped. Now Baal was a rain god. Baal worshippers believe that their God made rain, which obviously is very important when you depend upon farming and you don't have irrigation. Elijah apparently prayed for that drought to prove that Yahweh, not Baal, was in charge of the weather, that he was the one who decided when it rains and when it doesn't rain, when the land is productive and when it isn't productive. He was the one who was in charge of giving crops. Uh, the planter may plant, but it is God who produces the, uh, the increase, ultimately. It was also um, common at this time, uh, throughout the ancient Near East, to believe that their false gods had great power in certain areas over particular regions and mountains and countries and so on. Uh, and that therefore, wherever their worshippers were centralized, that was the place of, of their great power. So Baal's supposed power would be greatest where he was most worshipped. But now Elijah goes to the land of the Sidonians, to a city that, as I said, was known as a Mecca for Baal worship, to show that the power of the God of Israel has no boundaries that he is the God of the heavens and the earth, that he alone is the creator. He reigns over all of his creation, and apart from him there is no other. The Lord assures Elijah as well that he's not sending him out in the dark. I'm not saying, he's not saying to him, Elijah, take a great leap of faith and hopefully this will work out. The Lord is sovereign over everything that happens everything that happened in Elijah's life, but also everything that happens in your life. Understand this. You may find yourself in a situation that is not agreeable to you. You may not enjoy your job. You may not enjoy your school. You may not enjoy your unit. You may not enjoy your deployment. You may not enjoy whatever is happening around you, the way that you're being treated or mistreated. And yet know this, Christian, the Lord has not forgotten you. And you are there for a purpose. Sometimes we don't know why we're there at that particular time. 
I, I didn't realize, I, I, I'm not sovereign over the universe, I didn't realize why it was that God had raised up this, this small Bible study in the middle of a company in Washington, D.C., but as time progressed, I began to see the fruits of that, of that Bible study, the way it changed the, my life and the lives of, of many others in that place, the way, in fact, in which it, it allowed us to continue on to, to work without being driven down or ground into the dust. It may be the case that you're in some place that is very dark, very difficult, but you're there for a purpose, that God intends you to show his light in the middle of that darkness. And the Lord assures Elijah that he has commanded a widow to take care of him. Now, this would indicate that even in Zarephath, the Lord had his people, people who knew God. And that's something we need to remember. Uh, the Lord preserves a remnant. We read this article I, I said uh, before you this morning uh, for your prayer about what's going on in California. It is sometimes tempting to think, when we think of California, well, it's a place just of, of utter pagan idolatry that all the Christians have already gone to Texas and that uh, there's, there's nothing left. But the Lord, know this, always preserves for himself a remnant in every place. There is, <laughs> Fres, yes. No, anyway, the <laughs> there are still God's people in California and in New York. There are even still a few in my birthplace in England. It may be a very small community, but the Lord can still do great things in the midst of it. Know this, he will never leave himself without a witness in the world. Sometimes it's very difficult to be a witness when you're the only one. It requires great courage. It required intense courage for Elijah to be willing to go to this place, and yet he was. But not only Elijah, not only this prophet, we'll see that there was quite a good deal of courage being displayed by this widow who he is sent to. But he is told, you're not going there by yourself. You'll have a place to stay. You'll have food to eat. You'll have water to drink, and so on. So he comes, that is, Elijah comes to Zarephath, and the first thing he sees is this widow collecting sticks. And she recognizes him as a Jew. You see that by her responses, and, and very possibly as a, as a holy man, as a, as a prophet. She believes that the Lord God lives, as your Lord God lives, as God lives, is what she says to him. She even uses the most holy name for him. She doesn't say when she speaks of the Lord, and you see it, uh, just uh, uh, you'll note that it's in capital letters, the word Lord here. Okay, that would indicate that it's not Adonai, which is a way of actually saying Lord in the way that you and I would say Lord. It references usually God, but Adonai can actually be a noble as well. But she doesn't say Adonai lives. She doesn't even say El Shaddai lives, the almighty God. She instead calls him by those four letters, Y-H-W-H, uh, four letters in Hebrew that are so very important because that word Yahweh, it means I am. She says, I am, as I am lives. The one who himself is self-existent. The one who himself has created the heavens and the earth. The only one who reigns over all creation. He lives. She believes that. But the faith that she has in him is going to be tested. Is that a theoretical faith? Do you believe that the Lord God exists and that's it? Or do you believe he exists and you trust him? 
that he loves you and he'll take care of you. How is her faith going to be tested? Well, what does the prophet ask her for initially? He asks her for something very precious. What's the first thing that he asks for? Water. In the middle of an uh, an area-wide drought, what is the most precious item that you would have in your household? Undoubtedly, it was water. He asks her for a glass of water. And then, as she's going away, she says, all right, we'll, we'll give him some water. She's going away to get it. And then he asks her for something even more precious in the midst of a famine, because without water, you don't grow crops. And without grain, you can't make bread. He asks her for bread. Now, she had only, she says, enough left for one last cake. She was planning on making that and then eating it, this one last meager meal with her son, and then starving to death. She said essentially that morning, the end has come. It's all over. We'll have one last meal, and then we'll be content to die. But now this Jew, who is a stranger to her, is asking her for that last meal. Give it to me. Now, had she been, we we know that she was relatively wealthy, but she's a widow, which means her husband has died. She had her own house. She has a household. That usually means that she probably had a servant or two as well. But she is not well provisioned. Even had she been well provisioned, it still would have been a sacrifice in a time of drought and famine, not knowing when you would get more grain or more flour, uh, to give something away to a stranger. This is all that she has. And yet... She is willing to do it. Now, let me stop and say this. I I know you know this intuitively. It is relatively easy to believe in God and to have faith when you have everything you need or you think you need. It's easy when you have ample food, ample clothing, health, and money, and friends, and support all around you. It is much harder when everything seems to be flowing in the opposite direction. While this woman knew the living God, I doubt she had much support in the city of Zarephath for her belief. And everything that she depended upon was going away from her. She had lost her husband. She was a widow. She had lost the last remnants of her food and provision. She's down to nothing. All she has are her clothes, some sticks that she's picked up to make a fire, and her son. Uh, Many a Christian finds that they are happy to tithe when they have a good-paying job, but they will stop the moment they are out of work and say, oh, I can't can't give to the Lord any longer because, you know, I I don't have a job. I don't have uh, a stable income going in. I I have to hoard what I have. But I would put it to you, it's precisely in those situations, it's precisely then that our faith is being most tested. With that greatest of questions, who do you really depend upon? When you stop paying, okay, out your, your money uh, to the Lord, when you stop tithing, remembering always that everything that you have comes by his hand and that you're merely giving back a portion of that. When you stop doing that, you're saying, I depend upon myself. I cannot depend upon God to set a table for me in the midst of the wilderness. Now, this does not mean that we should be stupid. I know of people who, uh, they've fallen into financial uh, trouble, and they have given away uh, everything that they have, saying that the Lord would provide. That's actually putting the Lord your God to the test. But even when we're poor, it should be 10% that we're giving to the Lord at the very least. 
Tithing is an ancient, obviously, Old Testament practice. In the New Testament, it's as the Lord has increased you. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. The importance of this is in the midst of it that we do it by faith and that we do it cheerfully depending upon him, saying, I don't depend upon myself. Who do I depend upon for everything? I depend upon God. And I, I use tithing as an example. There are plenty of other examples that I could use. The important thing is to believe the promises of God, to believe that if you're his child, he has not left you, he has not forgotten you, that he will watch over you no matter what your circumstances are, and that you can trust in him in the midst of them. So the prophet goes ahead and gives her the promise of God. He asks for the last of her provisions, and then he says this, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first, and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now, it's often thought that ancient people were like children. They were very gullible. They'll believe anything that people tell them. That was not the case. She knew that bins are not never-ending bins. She knew that jars were not never-ending jars, that generally when you got to the bottom, that was it. It did not replenish itself. If this was going to happen, it would require a miracle. The Lord would have to overcome that which is ordinary by his supernatural power. In the ordinary events of, uh, of the day, flower bins, once they're depleted, will remain that way. But she believes this promise from God. And just as Elijah has said, neither the jar nor the bin run out. Now, let me say at this point, if this was an old Disney movie, the kind they used to make back in the 1950s and 40s and 30s and so on, or if this was a typical word of faith sermon rather than reality, it would have just ended there. And they lived happily ever after with their never-ending bin of flour and their never-ending jar of oil. To end. But that's not what happened, is it? She exercised her faith. She believed the promise of the Lord. She did what he said. But then what happens later on? Her son becomes sick. And instead of getting better, he begins to die. For the only son of a widow to be dying in the ancient world was, I, I, I would equate it with being trapped underground in a cave, unable to get out, watching as your only flashlight dies. That must have been the feeling as she watched the, the life ebbing from him. Very soon she would be in complete darkness, apart from the pain of having a child die, which no parent wants to. I, most parents would rather die themselves than watch their child die. There was no welfare at this time, obviously. There was no social security. There was no 401k. There was no retirement community. There was nothing. Her hope for the future depended upon her offspring. And in this case, she only has one child. And if you weren't rich and you didn't have other children to provide for you, you had, in a worldly sense, no hope. And so her hope dies in her own household. And she clearly blames Elijah for his death. Now, how is that the case? How, how could she blame Elijah for his death? At this point, she must have forgotten that had Elijah not shown up, she would have starved and they both would have died. Uh, but she believed, as, as so many times in the Old Testament we see, and this was very common, the uh, apostles even suffered from it in the time of, of Christ, that death and sickness are always a punishment for some hidden sin. 
And what did she believe? Well, she probably laments the fact now that this holy man had come into her household and the attention, the gaze of God had been upon her. And it had brought her sin into greater contrast and had drawn the ire of God upon her. The presence of genuine holiness will often stir up a guilty reaction. Regardless of whether she thought upon her prior sins prior to Elijah coming to her household, she clearly has been thinking about them. That's not an uncommon reaction when when the holiness of God is brought before a sinner. We remember, or at least I hope you remember, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter is in the boat with Jesus. They've just had the miraculous catch of fish. And when he saw it, well, this is what happened. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. It's not absolutely clear that he knew that Christ, at this point in time, in Luke 5, as he would later on know, was the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. But he knew this was, at the very least, a very holy prophet, a man of God, in the boat with him. And he knew himself to be a sinner. And his reaction is, go away from me. Now, let me say this. There is an element of truth in that. The holy and the unholy cannot coexist together. You can't have light and darkness. Light destroys darkness. And sinful men cannot establish their righteousness before God themselves. And that is why for us to be pardoned by the Lord and to be able to dwell with him, it required God sending his son to die in our place, to establish our righteousness. Now, this widow had seen the power of God. And she had seen the mercy of God in providing the oil and the flour. But was that something that was done for her? must have been a question that she was asking. Was this done for her and her son as well as the prophet? Or was the oil and the flour provided so that the prophet might live in her household and be fed? Perhaps it was done by God because he he loved his servant Elijah, who was so holy, but actually despised her because she knew herself to be a sinner. And so as soon as possible, uh, she's afflicted. And simply put, she had not yet experienced the fullness of God's mercy to her, the greatness of God's mercy to her. And she is about to. This is the first time, incidentally, that anybody is raised from the dead in the Bible. And I want you to understand this is not a resuscitation. She knew her son to be dead. He had no more breath left in him. This is a raising from the dead. Now, it's not a full-blown resurrection. When we are resurrected, we will not be resurrected to die again. We will have bodies made new, bodies like Christ's. He the first fruits, and then us after him. We are looking forward to that day when we will have a resurrection never to die again. This is a raising from the dead, genuinely. But, obviously, this boy died once again later on. But she understands after he is raised that the same God who provided oil and flour has provided life for her son. She knows also that she can trust the word that's delivered by God's prophet. And incidentally, as I said before, this is the primary reason for, for doing miracles in the Bible. They attest, that is, they, they prove that the person who did them is in fact a messenger of God. Nicodemus may not have realized it, but he was actually right when he said to Jesus in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And that was absolutely true. 
Nobody could have done these things. It's something that, that Peter preaches on Pentecost. He said, you yourselves saw all the signs that he did. Jesus himself said, if you don't believe me, believe the signs that I do. These miracles show that I am, in fact, <laughs> I am. Uh, it's funny, I was just talking to Graham as we were reading that passage from John chapter 8. There's uh, a point where Jesus says to the Jews, I am. Unfortunately, it's one of the places where I disagree with the NKJV, and I'll explain in a little while why. They add in italics, he. I don't think they should have. What he said was ego on me. I am. And that was very important. Jews would have picked up on it immediately. Why? Because it's the Greek version of that name, the four letters, Y-H-W-H. What is that in Hebrew? Yahweh, meaning I am. I am the one who is and always has been. That was Christ's claim. Now, what are the applications of all of this? Uh, the first is that you, yourselves, and I, and I need to remind myself of this because I, I forget. What happens is I wake up in the morning, and I know the first thing that I should do is I should immediately go to the Bible. I absolutely should. But temptation is always crouching at my door. I'm going to listen to the news first. And then I listen to the news first, and I go, ah, where is God in the world? What has happened? This is crazy. People are doing things that just, you know, when I was a kid, we knew that's stupid. <laughs> you, know, you used to joke, boys don't have babies. <laughs> no, boys are having babies. It's, you know, you, you listen to the news, and, and if that was all the input I was getting, I would despair. I absolutely would. I have to go to the Bible immediately after the news in order to, to, to get regrounded. I should be doing it in the opposite way. But you live in the midst of a nation much like Zarephath. You, too, have a national religion founded on, on perverse sexuality uh, that exalts infant sacrifice, that makes eunuchs to serve at the altar of their new gods, that believes that we placate the sun god and convert droughts by sacrificing cows and abstaining from certain foods. Our, our new holy meal is apparently insects. Uh, but you, brothers and sisters, I say all that, but I say this, you know better. You absolutely know better. The Lord your God has told you so. You know this is nonsense, as great and as abominable as the nonsense that was going on in Zarephath at Elijah's time. Isaiah, who himself lived in a nation that was turning, he was a prophet to Judah, the, the southern kingdom, but it was also a place that was turning against God. He brought the word of the Lord to his people in Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. If it happened, it happened because I did it. I'm up here. There's only me. If it were not so, I would have told you. There is only one God. The God of Elijah, the God of Isaiah, the God of David, of Abraham, of Jacob, of Isaac. And I hope and I pray your Lord and your God as well not just the God of your fathers. And he has only one son, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Although he has many adopted children, he has only one natural, 
eternally begotten Son. And you know that this God will have the victory. He also says in Isaiah, Isaiah 46, 22, look to me and be saved, not just you Israelites. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That includes you who are Abraham's children by faith. We live in a dark time. But so did Elijah, and the Lord sustained him. The Lord will sustain you as well. We saw how the Lord always preserves a remnant for himself. Even in this nation, the Lord will preserve his 7,000 who will not bow the knee to Baal. Sometimes we need a little support and encouragement from one another in the midst of that. But remember, the Lord is true. You can trust him just as Elijah trusted him, just as the widow trusted him in the extreme, you can as well. You can trust him and you can obey his commands. And you can believe also in his particular mercy. There is, I find, and I found this in more than one Christian actually, they come to church and they're aware of the mercy of God and they know he's a merciful God, but they are somehow unaware that he's merciful particularly to them. In other words, the Lord shows mercy to this congregation, but is he really showing mercy to me? Does he really love me? Does he care for me? Is he concerned with me? Maybe it's for someone else. You see, I'm a sinner. Of course you're a sinner. If you know that much, you are ahead of most of the world, believe it or not. You are a sinner, but the Lord loves to save sinners and to show them unmerited mercy. This widow is in such a dire state, but by merely being in that dire state, she had not won the Lord's favor. It's not simply because she's a widow. Jesus pointed that out, believe it or not, when he came to his own people. In Luke 4.24, you remember, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, he preached, and everybody looked at him and said, who does he think he is? He came from, from this, this town. And now he's standing up and speaking like the Messiah. And Jesus answers in Luke 4.24, Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. The Lord loved that woman. The Lord showed her his particular mercy, his particular grace, not because she was a widow, but because she was his. He had chosen her. Jesus later on would say this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. In 1 John 4.9, the same apostle would later write to Christians, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Just as God sent Elijah to save that woman from starvation, 
and to build up her faith. So he has sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world to be the propitiation for your sins. Again and again, one of the things that's repeated more often than, than any other word of consolation is do not be afraid. Why should you not be afraid? Because there are, aren't really scary. I, I mean, we, we comfort our kids, don't we? They're, mommy, mommy, there's a monster under the bed. And unless there's a can underneath there, there is no monster under the bed. Somebody caught that. Anyway, uh, (laughs) you know, what they're afraid of doesn't exist. The problem is many of the things that we're afraid of do exist. And it's at that point in time we need to hear, don't worry, the Lord is greater than all of them. He who is within you is greater than he who is in the world. The question is, do you believe it? The widow believed it. She expressed that, and her faith was built up. Remember this. The just one, Jesus Christ, was sent not for just people, but for the unjust, for you and I, wicked sinners, so that we might be made holy, so that we might receive the adoption of sons and daughters. Elijah was sent to this particular widow because the Lord loved her. He was sent to you because the Lord loves you. Believe it or not, his word to you is a blessing. Do you receive it as such? Do you believe that the Lord does not just love generally? He's not just merciful generally, but that he is merciful particularly to you. That he sent his son into the world to die for not just sin, but your sins. And then to call you to himself. I pray that that's the case. Let's go before him. God, our Father, we thank you, Lord, for this story of Elijah and the widow and how it builds up our faith. I pray now, Lord, that you would be with us and that you would remind us that you came for us, not just for the church as a general idea, but for us in particular, that Christ died to save us from our sins. And we are thankful for that. Now, Lord, help us to continue to worship you all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' holy name.